short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. To the Cold War, episode 21. Did you like that little ditty, Ray? Obviously, that was the inspiration of uh, Devil Went Down to Georgia. Um, so that's where, yeah, Charlie Daniels got the song. I did not know I could learn so much history uh, from a song and harmonizing at that. So I think we should use that tonight as a technique to uh, to go through the story of Yalta. There was a band called the Golden Gate Quartet. Okay. They I got stumbled. a little bit wrong about how Hitler was born, suitcases or whatever. But other than that, I mean, boom. Really? Good you, can, you, can you back that up? You sure it wasn't the devil with suitcases? Um, I think the <laughs> devil could do better than that. I don't know. And, <laughs> and you know, so whatever. I don't know. Well, uh, just just a connection between those guys and you. The, the Golden Gate Jubilee Singers, they were formed mm-hmm. as in 1934 by four students at the Booker T. Washington College in Norfolk, Virginia. Wow. There you Some go. Some of my peeps. Nice. Good for <laughs> yeah. them. Good for them. I like that. I thought it was really cute. Yeah. No, I never heard that. Uh, couple of things before we get into the guts of it today. Uh, Lee McKnight, one of our listeners, had an idea that we should ask uh, our audience to submit their memories of the Cold War. Oh, that's um, Maybe your parents or your grandparents, if they're still around, you know, if they have any memories of <clears throat> the Cuban Missile Crisis or... Uh, Hiroshima or Vietnam or Korea or, or, or yeah. whatever it is. You try and get them on a recording, get your iPhone out, say, hey, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Right. And uh, <clears throat> hit record, send it to us as a file, and we might use it on the show. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Please do that. Um, all right, so last time we had the big meeting in Tehran, and the next big meeting of the big three was in February 1945. Now, uh, this a lot, a lot happened, as we, we mentioned some of what happened in 1944 in the last time, uh, Churchill and Stalin and the percentages agreement and all this kind of stuff. But one of the other things that happened is in that period, the U.S. and the Pacific War had recaptured the Philippines from the Japanese. Yay! Mm. No? Too, too no, soon? No, well... <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you're cheering for. You're cheering for That's, the Filipinos? Yeah, not so uh, much. Not so much. <laughs> now, when I was doing my notes, I was like, recaptured the Philippines. Why? What, <laughs> what does recapture mean? I, I didn't know the full story behind why the US 
had possession of the Philippines in the first place. I knew it vaguely had something to do with the Spanish-American War right. going back to God's the end will. of the 19th century. <laughs> God's will. <laughs> God's will. Yeah. But I, uh, I didn't know the full story, and so I decided, uh, you know, I'd take five minutes and read the story. Five All right. Fuck me. So <laughs> this, as a result... This entire episode is going to be dedicated to the question yeah. of why America had possession of the Philippines right. in the first half of the 20th century, or as it is apparently known, the first Vietnam. Right. And the more I read this, the more instructive I found it. And it puts a number of things into perspective. Vietnam, uh, the Atlantic Charter, the US's uh, sort of version of imperialism, their, uh, their their relationship with Cuba in the 20th century. Uh, I just thought it was worth taking an episode to drill down into this because I was shocked. Now, not mm. much shocks me, Ray, when it yeah, comes no. to your country. People You're the accuse me of not the shocky. <laughs> people accuse me of being anti-American. Uh, as somebody sent me a message uh, on Facebook this week, Cam, it's hard to hear you criticize America when you come from the country that gave us Ken Ham. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's really embarrassing for <laughs> my, us. My bad. Ken Ham, if you don't know it, is the guy who runs the Creationist Museum. Is yeah. that in Virginia? Somewhere in the in like redneck part of the US. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But if it is here, I would not be surprised at all. But I don't yeah. know. Uh, he's from Brisbane too, like it's even worse, not just Australia, he's from Brisbane, fucking dipshit. Well, anyway. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, strap yourselves in. Oh, so my point was, even somebody who's as, uh, let's say, sceptical about the US's intentions in a lot of things was absolutely shocked and horrified as I read this story. And I suspect that a lot of Americans probably know as little about it as I did. Uh, I certainly, I, I asked Chrissy, she had no idea. What about you? Did you have much of an idea about this before I sent you my right. notes for today's no, show? No, no, I was, I was thinking, I was reading over those and I was thinking about it. And I mean, I took as many history classes as I could in high school. So absolutely zero covered from there. I think it was zero in college, even though I, I focused on World War II. But ju just to throw this out, this is our this is our, our declaration, if you will, or whatever the proper word I should be using. Um, this is not just an opportunity to, to, uh, to slap America around. This is a, a pertinent example, and we're going to get to it why, but this is just showing that America is not as clean cut, as shiny, as as, as good as, as we portray ourselves to be, because nobody possibly could be that good. America has its certainly its its dark chapters, um, including the Japanese internment during World War Two. So there is reason behind this. It's not just a chance to, to go off on someone. And we're going to make that very clear. So before you send in your hate mails, please mm. listen to the entire episode and then send in your hate mail. <laughs> yeah. No, look, this is absolutely not a beat up America show uh, episode. Um, this is about fully appreciating America's interests uh, during uh, the 20th century and mm -hmm. uh, examining the differential between their rhetoric and their actions, uh, examining some of their motivations for their military endeavors overseas. Uh, and and also looking at the the contradictions between their anti-imperialist rhetoric during the Atlantic Charter and the creation of the United Nations and the criticisms 
of Stalin's annexations or of the British Empire versus the US's own behaviour in terms of their own annexations or or invasions or 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 whatever you want to call it. if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You you almost have to use that word. And this is the first uh, example of that happening outside of the continental uh, Americas. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we've already mentioned before... They're taking of Mexico, they're, they're taking of the Indian lands and all of that kind of stuff. But this is the first time, uh, well, it sort of happens around the same era as Hawaii and, and mm-hmm. um, taking of the Philippines. Anyway, and I, I was reading, I, and I also... Um, <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me go back a step. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading about this in George Keenan. Oh, no, sorry. That would be Kennan's book, uh, <laughs> American Diplomacy. He start, His book it's, 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 um, came out in, the I think, the late 50s, early 60s. Kennan, who we've talked about a number of times on the show, and we're going to talk about a lot more as we move forwards, the architect of the containment policy of the Soviet Union, uh, ambassador, American ambassador to the USSR. Mm-hmm during and uh, sort of the the 40s and 50s um he uh in his book American diplomacy which was a collection of his speeches that he'd given um uh, he starts off the first couple of chapters talking about uh the US and the Philippines and and basically saying what the fuck was that all about seriously right yeah. so if it's good enough for George Cannon the guy who pretty much invented the Cold War to spend an inordinate amount of time on this episode, the Filipino-American War, uh, in context of explaining the Cold War, then I think it's justified for us to do it as well. Absolutely. And again, I just want to say, as an American, I'm sitting there reading this stuff and I'm like, did we really do that? Because at some point, halfway through the story, not even halfway through the story of the Philippines, you can't tell the difference between the United States of America and some European power that's pretty much just grabbed territory because they could and because of the commercial interests. And so, but again, as, as painful as it is, it's always the best policy to be courageous and to be honest and to look at the facts of the way they are, just so you don't keep lying to yourself or let others lie to you and that you know the truth and it's just always the best position to be in no matter how uncomfortable it may be and it particularly amused me because i've been reading about this over the last couple of weeks when recently the current president of the philippines duterte called Mm -hmm. president obama a son of a whore or a son of a bitch depending on which translation of tagalog you believe and the american press went fucking nuts Yes, they do. And I and I saw people on Facebook going, "How dare he?" And I'm going, "Hold on a second. Do you know what the Americans did to the Philippines a hundred and ten, fifteen years ago? Really? And you're you're worried about him calling you a president, a son of a bitch? Really? Anyway, yeah. so um, let me let me get into this. So why were they there? So it goes back to 1898 and the Spanish American War, which I'm sure. Americans are somewhat familiar with. What was the cause of that war? Uh, Remember well, the Maine. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Is that a thing? Do people say that? No. I mean, it, if after you read it a couple times in the book, you're like, oh, yeah. But no, no one, no one goes around saying it's Remember the Alamo or whatever. But no, no one goes around saying Remember the Maine. Oh, okay. Well, they did. They did. Sixteen yes. years ago, eighteen years yes, ago, a yeah. lot. 
So here's the, here's the quick version of the Spanish-American War. Um, Spain, of course, had uh, you know, uh, occupied a number of South American, Latin American countries, which is why they're called Latin American countries. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the Cuban guerrillas had been trying to throw off Spanish colonial control for decades throughout the 19th century. This is uh, you know, half a century before the Castro Revolution. The, the intellectual leader of the Cuban independence movement in the 19th century was a guy by the name of Jose Marti, who is still revered in Cuba today. He was revered by Fidel Castro, Chavo Guevara, uh, and the 26th of July movement as sort of the intellectual founder of their movement. They saw themselves as the continuation of Jose Marti's work. And the Cuban War of Independence had been going on and off since about 1868. There were periods of conflict and there'd be periods of... uh, 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 what do you call it? Hot, when you... War, hot war and a cold war, basically. What do, you, what do you call it when there's an armistice? An armistice. Yes, there'd be an <laughs> armistice. Uh, that was the word I was searching for. I was yeah, going to say peace, but not really peace. They'd no, sort of have no. an armistice and then they'd pick back up again. And it was going pretty badly for the Cubans. Uh, there were thousands of actual insurgents were dead, but also there was like 300,000 Cubans dead from disease and famine resulting from the war. Of course... During times of war, crops get destroyed, houses get destroyed, uh, people get chased off of their land, and the the, the infrastructure of society mm-hmm. breaks down and, and a lot of people, particularly in poor countries, underdeveloped countries, uh, die easily as a result of lack of medical care, lack of food, uh, lack of clean water, lack of shelter, all of these things. Um And uh, so the U.S. citizens who were sort of watching this were rightly appalled. And I think Mm -hmm. partly because they saw in this a reflection of their own overthrow of a colonial power a century or so earlier. Americans love the underdog, even though we haven't been one since the end of World War One. America still absolutely will back an underdog if you give them half a chance. It's just in our makeup. Right. Well, let's let's explore that as this episode goes on, shall we? I mostly mean in sports, but yeah. No, oh, I'm just saying it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of who we are. It's not realistic, mm. but I'm just saying, you know, when you, yeah, mm. there, it reminded us of fighting off the great British mm. Empire. Of course, mm. we tell ourselves we did it by ourselves, but it was. So the you were, you were, you were big supporters of the Castro re- revolution then? No, not that one, because he was fighting against us. Fuck him. <laughs> Oh, no, he wasn't fighting against you. He was fighting against uh, right. Batista. But we're, but we're, right, but we're going to get to that soon mm. enough where, yeah, not on our side. Uh-huh. Oh, so you're big, big fans of the underdog when you when like them. When it suits us. When exactly. it suits you, yeah. What's not clear about that? I don't, I don't get that. So that was part of it, but the, part of their reason for uh, wanting to support the Cubans at this stage, but there were also commercial reasons. U.S. Secretary of State James G. Blaine wrote about Cuba on the 1st of December, 1881. He said, That rich island, the key to the Gulf of Mexico, is, though in the hands of Spain, a part of the American commercial system. If ever ceasing to be Spanish, Cuba must necessarily become American and not fall under any other European domination. Damn right. And can I tell you why? Because of the God-given, God-inspired Monroe Doctrine. 
mm-hmm. that states that further excuse me that further efforts by european nations to take control of any independent state in north or south america will be viewed as the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the united states so you stay the hell out but we promise to stay the hell out of any existing european colonies or meddle in any concerns of european countries so that was in 1823 like 60 years later you stay out we stay out of yours what don't you understand about that so america again this is not right or wrong america takes the monroe at this doctrine at this point very seriously and spanish uh government is is um violating it and so we see an opportunity to exert ourselves based off the justification of the monroe doctrine but spain was already there when the monroe yeah. doctrine was yeah, yeah, created that, was... we don't care we don't care <laughs> the Monroe Doctrine was about any future European uh, right. attempts from, to from, from gain influence. Right, right. Yeah, the so Spanish had been there for centuries. Mm. Yes. We well, the, the key thing I want to put out was Cuba was already part of the American commercial system in Blaine's words. Obviously a major exporter of, of tobacco, very fine cigars, mm-hmm. uh, sugar, fruit, these sorts of things. Uh, and there were American interests, commercial interests in Cuba already at the time. Now they were uh, these American commercial interests were being threatened by the Spanish Cuban War, the Cuban War of Independence, and the U.S. government decided to intervene. Jose Marti himself went to the U.S. Uh, in the late 19th century after being deported to Spain. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get the U.S. involved in helping the cause of the Cuban independence movement, but he was concerned that the U.S. was going to try to kick Spain out and then take control of Cuba themselves. Right. Um, Especially after they annexed Hawaii in 1898, which is another story we should tell at some stage. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. America is not pure, but we'll get to to Hawaii later. Mm. So in January of 1898, fighting broke out in Havana and the U.S. consul in Havana cabled Washington expressing uh, concern for the safety of the Americans in Havana. And so the U.S. sent the battleship, the USS Maine, to basically the port of Havana, uh, gunboat diplomacy, as we've mentioned before. Technically, I think it was to to help uh, evacuate uh, American Mm -hmm. citizens, but it was also to say, hey, we've got some big fucking guns here. And uh, yeah. Question, my hand's up, you probably can't see it. Um, oh, sorry, I thought what, that was still down your shorts as usual. What? That's the other one. Something else was What up. are Americans doing in Cuba when there's been an on and off civil war since 1868? That just reminded me of when uh, Caesar was in Gaul and <laughs> the Gauls caught some uh, Roman businessmen far away from Rome and killed them. And so Caesar had to go deal with that. What in the hell? I mean, there, there's civil war going on. People are dying. There's disease. There's famine. What are Americans doing in this war zone in the first place? I cannot wrap my head around people that do these kinds of things. Well, of course, as we've talked about on this series during the economics episodes, there's plenty of opportunities for profiteering during war, Uh, particularly if you're on the side of the guys with the biggest guns. So if you're an American businessman and you're friendly with the uh, Spanish authorities... Mm-hmm. Uh, or the colonial authorities, let's say. Right. Uh, there's great opportunities to buy up cheap farms, man. When the Spanish armies, the colonial armies, are running the peasants off of their farmland, 
great opportunities to come in and buy it cheap, take it off their hands. You can acquire huge tracts of land. Uh, there are, I mean, it, it, I'm not saying that necessarily that's why they were all there. Some of them yeah. may have had other reasons, but maybe their kids were born there, going to school, whatever. But right. there are always opportunities for war profiteering. There's a shit ton of Americans that have found their way to Afghanistan and Iraq and I'm probably I'm sure even Syria um, over the last 15 years in order to take advantage of the opportunities that the destabilization caused by war offers you got to have either balls of steel or just be a psychopath uh, you know yeah no (laughs) your your, your risk the risk centers of your brain aren't operating very strongly but you know Big fortunes get made in, in times of uh, the the fracturing of society during wars. Um, okay. So they send the USS Maine, and a few weeks later, it exploded and sank. Ooh, that was obviously the the conniving of the Spanish government to hmm. get rid of the American big gun in right off the harbor, right? Certainly the way that it was portrayed in the United States. They, the official story at the time was that it was uh, a mine underneath the hull that exploded. The mm-hmm. Spanish government, however, absolutely denied it and didn't just deny it, seemed to be like completely frantically trying right. to deny it and express upon the Americans that they had nothing to do with it. The Spanish didn't want a war with the United States. They were trying to avoid it at all costs. They knew... Mm-hmm that uh, it wasn't going to go well for them, that their Navy was, you know, relatively weak at, at this juncture. And um, so the whole story just smelled. And later investigations decided that it was likely something inside the ship that caused the explosion. It hasn't been verified still to this day. There's uh, no... right. Absolute conclusion, but most historians that have studied it tend to think it was something internal that right. uh, that destroyed the ship. But either way, it was turned into a cause celeb to get well, let, let me, Americans in I'm, more support of uh, going to war with Spain. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just want to throw yes, out you did. one You're more thing rude, about that. Rude. You've turned 50. And you don't give a fuck anymore. You're just like interrupting me. Pretty much don't. (laughs) It's a great feeling. I recommend everyone try it. No, just that 80 years after the event, the United States Navy did their own inquiry. And they pretty much, to the best of their ability, obviously this is not definitive, that it was um, the accidental igniting of a coal dust in the ship's hold. So as far as they could tell, like you were saying, it was internal. It did seem to be an accident. But at this point, it doesn't matter because it is going to get spun and sold to the American people in an incredible way. But from what, what we can tell the United States Navy, it was an accident. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it was turned into a, a major story in the U.S. Um, and it's kind of a famous period here. We have newspaper barons Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World and William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal who see this as an opportunity for great headlines and for selling newspapers. They're in a battle uh, with their for, for circulation, for selling their newspapers at the time. Uh, they go nuts blaming Spain and demanding retribution. They 
published sensationalist uh, accounts of atrocities that are being committed by the Spanish in Cuba using headlines uh, such as Spanish murderers and remember the main. And this is what has become known as yellow journalism. This was the invention of yellow journalism, which is usually defined as a combination of scare headlines in huge print, uh, lavish use of uh, pictures or imaginary drawings to uh, strike fear into the hearts of mortal men, the use of faked interviews, misleading headlines, pseudoscience, so-called experts parading a load of bullshit, uh, emphasis on full-colour Sunday supplements, usually with comic strips, and drawing sympathy with the underdog against the system. And this was famously mocked by Orson Welles in the greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this... Our murders off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Can Kane. you prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's <laughs> fine, Mr. Kane. Yes, I rather like myself. So, right away. I right came away. to see you yes, about this Mr. campaign Thatcher. of yours. Mm-hmm. This inquiry campaign against the public transit company. Mr. Thatcher, do you know anything we could use against them? Still the college boy, aren't you? Oh, no, Mr. Thatcher. I was expelled from college. A lot of colleges, you remember. I remember. Charles... I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's... On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure. See to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged. Maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. (laughs) Nice. I love his voice. Get him, Orson. Me too. So much. So much in that clip uh, that, you know, obviously the the reference to uh, you send the photo, you provide the photos, I'll provide the war, um, which is based on a story that artist Frederick Remington supposedly telegrammed Hearst 
telling him all was quiet in Cuba and there will be no war. And Hearst supposedly responded, please remain, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. <laughs> Although Hearst denied it ever happened and historians haven't found ev- any evidence to support it, but it's a great story that lives on. And, and also one more thing, and this is where it really, this here gets the average American involved in this, remember the main thing. Um, Hearst and his New York Journal offered a $50,000 award for the detection of the perpetrator of the main outrage. So one, he's already assuming it was a terrorist attack. It was against us. And he's going to offer a award for anybody who can help find the person who did it because he knows that they're out there because it wasn't an accident. It was done on purpose. So it's something like that. When you throw a $50,000 award out there, the average person can't do anything about that. But to their mind, it kind of locks in that, yes, this is a, a fact. We were attacked and we have to fight back. And this whole... um model of ramping up the passions of the American people to justify uh, war. I mean, you can draw a straight line between what these guys were doing in 1898 and Fox News today, or uh, the New York Times in 2001, 2, 3, and the ramp up to the invasion of Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. based on completely dodgy journalism and dodgy uh, uh, evidence and sources. Uh, uh, written by Judith Miller. Um, You know, this kind of uh, 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 journalistic approach, for using the word journalism in a very loose sense, is is still prevalent today. Now it's more cable news and talkback radio than uh, newspapers, obviously, but it still happens. The, The formula of outrage, and Trump, I mean, Trump is playing this, just outrageous statements, big headlines, making shit up, uh, you know, causing people to get up in arms, not backing anything up by evidence. This this still works today, a, a century later. Yeah. It's, it's astounding that we haven't become much smarter. Uh, and Rupert Murdoch's an expert at this. The last yeah. of the great media barons like Pulitzer and Hearst, the, the, their inheritor, if you like, the successor to these guys, he uses the model that they used to build newspaper empires and has uh, done it over the last 50 years with all of his newspaper properties in Australia, the UK, and the US, and now his television channels as well. And it's amazing to me that someone like Trump can go, I've got a guaranteed plan to take out ISIS, to take out whatever terrorists, but I can't tell you because I don't want them to know. But trust me, people, trust me, once I'm in office, their ass is toast. I mean, what's even better is he's going to get them to pay for it. That's right. He's going to have them all, have them all killed cut their own and get them to pay for it. Uh, the, other, the other part of that uh, Kane clip I wanted to just talk about yeah. was where he says, I'm the right man to do it, mean represent the interests of the, the working class, because I have money and property. And if I don't do it, then somebody without money and property right. might do it, and that would be too bad. I, yeah. it, 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 he passes over it very quickly, but it's a brilliant insight uh, uh, you know, if you look at who controls the media, which claim to be the the fifth estate and claim to be fighting, uh, or the fourth estate claim to be mm-hmm. claim to be fighting for the uh, the people against power, but they're owned by people with power, wealth, and right. money. So really, I mean, uh, uh, how hard are they going to fight for the uh, working? class when they're owned by the rich elite uh, or their senior executives uh, if they're mm-hmm. a public company 
uh, uh, making twenty million dollars a year. You know, the CEO and the chairman and the, the you know the the senior yeah. exec. So anyway, if you're if you're a little guy fighting for the little guy. That's not very impressive, and you can be sidelined so easy. It's these people who have newspapers that have their own mouthpiece that can fight back. Yeah, and so you almost need a noble-hearted person with assets to fight for you, almost like like a Bernie. I mean, I don't know how sincere he is or whatever, what he could possibly do, but it seems pathetically sad but true that you have to have someone of means fight for the common person just because – the only thing we've got on our side is numbers, and, and unless you organize that, it doesn't mean very much. Well, for the moment, the internet is still unregulated, so you know we can use this as a platform for talking to people about the real issues. But you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't afford a team of investigative, investigative journalists right. and lawyers to protect myself from libel suits. That is a great ambition. I'd love to get there one day. <laughs> I'd love to have a dozen gun investigative journalists. Find- yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald has done that with The Intercept, but it's funded by uh, Peter Thiel, who's a rich white guy who made his money out of PayPal, also the guy that just brought down uh, Gorka. But anyway, we're, anyway, we're getting out. We've got a lot to cover. Let's get on with it. Yeah. So yeah, the yellow journalism papers uh, tried to ramp up the cause. It has often been portrayed that they sort of caused the war, although historians will now say they weren't read much out of outside of New York, had little influence outside of New York, so they didn't really play a major role. But um, mm-hmm. after the Maine was sunk, the Spanish government tried hard to do a deal with the US to avoid war, but the American public was in a frenzy and Congress declared war. If, if uh, I can, yes. I just want to give you a little bit because I drilled down into that. So about this time, right before Congress declares war, um, the United States ambassador to Spain got a message to President McKinley. And he said, look, can you hold everybody off and give me a little more time? Because this is what I'm getting from the Spanish government. They are willing to grant autonomy acceptable to the surgeons. They're willing to give them independence. They're even willing to secede, excuse me, to uh to give uh, Cuba over to us. And on that same day, the Queen of Spain ordered a complete armistice on the island. And the minister, the Spanish minister in Washington, promised the United States government an early promulgation of a system of autonomy. So Spain was bending over backwards, telling the American ambassador, we will do whatever you want. Let's just slow down, calm the fuck down, and figure this out. We are ready to give up because this there's no way this can end good for us. But like you just said, everybody's in a frenzy, and, and the Americans want everything to happen yesterday, and they're going to get what they want because they are so worked up. And I saw you bend over backwards in Vegas, and I have to say... I think it's much better when you bend over forwards. Spain should have bent over forwards. Over yeah, yeah, but obviously they made a mistake. Bending over backwards, over yeah, it's just it too, gets much, you further. It, too much it gets going you further. on there. Too much going on. <laughs> uh, now, when they were declaring war, there was a Republican senator, Henry M. Teller of Colorado, who proposed mm-hmm. the Teller Amendment to ensure that the U.S. would not establish permanent control over Cuba after the war. Let me read that again. A Republican Republican. was trying to protect the independence of Cuba. This is back when, in those good old days, when the Republicans (laughs) were actually the more sensible of the two major parties. 
that was a time he was closer to Lincoln than he is to Bush. So maybe that explains why he was like, okay, we'll do this, but we are not going to take permanent control. We're not in it for that. We're here to help the Cuban people and make some money out of it. Mm. Of course, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, also a Republican president who warned us about the rise of the military industrial complex. So there was a time when uh, you had some good Republicans good in the leadership. Good for them. Now, yeah. now they just go to the nearest asylum. They go to Arkham Asylum <laughs> and just open the doors of the cells and just let the crazies out. Who? You're a <laughs> Republican <laughs> presidential nominee. You're a Republican presidential nominee. You're a Republican presidential nominee. One of you is going to win the nomination. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so where was I? <laughs> so the amended resolution demanded Spanish withdrawal and authorized the president to use as much military force as he thought necessary to help Cuba gain independence from Spain. And in the spring of 1898, the strength of the regular U.S. Army was 28,000 men. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, and just to give you one more part, uh, Congress, because like you said, the American people have worked up. Congress has worked up. President McKinley, as we will see, is not so much worked up, but Congress votes to give McKinley with no strings, no commitment, no anything, $50 million to pursue the war, which is declared on April 21st, 1898. So just to give you an idea of where Congress is at in their head and McKinley's completely somewhere else, but we'll get to that later. So the army wanted 50,000 new men. They're going to use Mm -hmm. this war as justification to triple the size of their army, but they end up with over 220,000. Wait, they ask for 50,000. They get over four times as much. Yeah. Like when Caesar says, give me two or three legions, I'm going into Gaul, and he ends up raising 12 or 10 or whatever it was. Yeah. Jeez. So they go from 28,000 men to 250,000 men, combination of volunteers and the mobilization of the state National Guard units. Mm -hmm. So this is the beginning uh, of the ramp up of the U.S. military. Teddy Roosevelt, who, you know, I mean, I I just have so many mixed feelings about Teddy. Absolutely. On one hand, I read a bio on him a few years ago. Complete fucking legend. Uh, Balls of steel. That's right. Um, What he did (laughs) for the national parks was amazing. Yes. And I think it was just the anniversary. Trust busting, yeah. And the trust busting, getting shot in the heart on campaign, in the chest, while campaigning and just keeps going, keeps giving the speech. He goes, fuck you, I'm going to finish my speech. This is good (laughs) stuff I've got here. Getting shot in the chest. What do you think, I am a pussy? (laughs) Uh, the, 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 fo- the faked photo of him riding a moose across a stream is uh, one of my favorite photos of all time. I just wish it was real. Um, yeah. Anyway, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy at the time. The same position, coincidentally, that FDR held during World War One. His cousin. And of course, yes. Teddy would become president a few years later, but he was in full support of the war. Oh, yeah. In his autobiography, he wrote, Our own direct interests were great because of the Cuban tobacco and sugar and especially because of Cuba's relation to the projected Panama Canal or the Isthmian Mm. Canal, as they called it back then. But even greater were our interests from the standpoint of humanity. It was our duty, even more from the standpoint of national honor than from the standpoint of national interest 
to stop the devastation and destruction. Because of these consideration, I, considerations, I favoured war. Good for him. Get uh, you right there, right there, right there on the wallet. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but as he says, their direct commercial interests were great. But, oh yes, don't forget the people. <laughs> so let's... Brown, we got to help them out too. So let's see how the people fared, shall we? Yeah. These underdogs that you care about, <laughs> supposedly. Yeah. Um, so the first battle between the American and Spanish forces was at Manila Bay in the Philippines. Oh. And the Spanish were quickly defeated in a couple of hours. It wasn't Can- a big deal. Yeah. First of all, I want everybody to notice that we're not talking about Cuba, even though this is... And when the Americans gave their declaration of war, they only spoke of Cuba. So we've got this battle in Manila Bay in the Philippines, May 1st, 1898. And if if Cameron wasn't clear enough for you, the Americans shot first. And, And again, I just want to make this very clear. Um, Teddy Roosevelt wanted war. He used his position, Secretary of Navy, to put George Dewey in charge, who was the commander of the Asian fleets. They both wanted war. And because this was ramping up, um, Teddy Roosevelt made sure that George Dewey had enough ships, enough ammunition and enough men. So when they do decide to go to war, not in Cuba, in the Philippines, they're going to be able to override the Spanish forces there. Like you said, within hours, they're going to the Spanish ships were older. They, they weren't well supplied. They didn't have enough men. The, the Americans just go in there literally gearing up for war, already geared up for war. And they just go in there within a matter of a couple hours. They destroy <laughs> what is of the of the Spanish Navy. Yeah, it was all over very quickly. Boom. Yeah. And very quickly, Manila Bay is filled with warships from Britain, Germany, France, and Japan, all trying to protect their own interests in the region. Mm. They all had commercial interests through the Philippines. Wow. Then the U.S. Commodore uh, Dewey, you mentioned, he goes and tracks down the leader of the Filipino resistance against the Spanish rule, Emilio Mm -hmm. Aguinaldo, and uh, he brings him back from Hong Kong to the Philippines to rally the Filipinos against the Spanish colonial government. He, he joins forces, goes with yeah. the Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And by June, less than a month after the conflict started, the U.S. and Filipino forces have taken control of most of the islands. But right. on June 12th, Aguinaldo proclaims the independence of the Ooh. Philippines... Did he check with Dewey first? Uh, apparently, you know, his did emails he, were bouncing. Did he see him on the email? <laughs> the, the reception wasn't great on his mobile at the time, there his cell phone. What's that spot, a solar spot or whatever it's called in the sun where it blocks the... Yeah, so anyways, I, I don't he, think Dewey knew about it. Well, Aguinaldo just said, I, I heard Ray say that America's always in support of the underdogs. We're the so underdogs, obviously. So they're going, to be, they're going to be fully on board with this, right? They, right. They, they want Cuba to have independence. Of course they're yes. going to want us to have independence. There's, the, there's no fucking confusion here. It's not like he's going to be surprised. He's going to be all for it. He's going to pat me on the back, pick me up, put me on his shoulders and go, you go, boy! And play Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. Dewey is going to do hand, hand, hand I, I wish it, I can't remember. What do you call it? He's going to fucking jump for joy. I can't remember the name of it. So Dewey is going to be apoplectically happy when he hears about this. Oh, when wake me up before you declare independence, please. But obviously he did not get the memo. 
just for people who are new to the show, we are pro-gay. We uh, are on this show, as uh, many of our gay listeners gay. will support us on that. <laughs> I just like. I mean, I remember. Like the, because I was around during Wham, right? And uh, yeah. maybe I was naive, maybe I was innocent. Never once did I suspect that no, George Michael was I. gay. And you, I go back and you go back and you look at those film clips now, and you go, "Holy shit!" Yeah. Like oh, yeah. you could not it's be right more there. gay. You, it's if you look up funny. "gay" in the dictionary, there's a picture of George Michael in a wake, <laughs> in "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." Like what the with the orange gloves and the and the big white shirts that say "Choose Life." Love it. It yeah, was just—it so was a different time. It was we didn't want to know. We were in denial. We were right in the middle of Egypt, <laughs> like Perdicast. We yeah, Perdicast, exactly. Getting eaten by crocodiles. Okay. Um, uh, don't cross the streams, Ray. I keep telling you, you cannot <laughs> cross the streams. So, Aguinaldo proclaims independence of the Philippines. Um, ho- hostilities were halted on August twelfth, eighteen ninety-eight, uh, and the Spanish and the Americans signed a protocol of peace. Then they had a couple of months of negotiations, but uh, they formally signed a peace treaty, the Treaty of Paris, that was signed in Paris on December 10th, 1898. And Mm -hmm. the terms of the Treaty of Paris was that the United States gained all of Spain's colonies outside of Africa, including the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, except Cuba, which became a U.S. protectorate. Yeah, so we could free them all. And the US agreed to pay Spain $20 million in $1898 Damn. to take over all of these territories. Why, why do winners have to pay? What's the point of winning the war if then you got a <laughs> pony up? I, I, just, I just totally don't agree with that. Look, I won. If you don't like it, tough shit. If you don't like it, we can start fighting yeah. again. So, so we're fighting over Cuba, but we fight in Spain. And because of that, we get the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and become a tectorate of Cuba. Yes. That makes sense to who? Well, that's the, just the way it was done. Yeah, right? so. Teddy. Um, Teddy. Teddy. Now, Cuba formed its own civil government and gained uh, formal independence on May 20, 1902. Good for them. And the the U.S. military uh, announced the end of their jurisdiction over the island. However, there were Uh, a few restrictions that the U.S. government put on the new government, uh, including prohibiting them forming alliances with any other countries. And they reserved the right to intervene in Cuba whenever they fucking wanted. So, the, yeah. in, independence. Yeah, it's of a, a bit, kind. It's a bit like Germany and uh, Japan after World War Two. Sure, yeah, West Germany. Anyway, sure, you're independent. We're going to leave fifty thousand troops here. Uh, but no, really, you feel feel free, enjoy, and you're not, your freedom, and you're not allowed to have a military. But yeah. beyond that. Feel free to do whatever you want. But keep you, in we, mind, we can... We, we are not even looking. <laughs> no, Just no. Look go for it. Go for it. Why, why are we leaving 50,000 troops? Well, you know, because they're comfy. You know, they, yeah. they've sort of grown to love the place. Yeah, they've it's, learned a couple German words. Don't think of it as a threat right. at no. all. They like a bit no. of German and Japanese <laughs> strange from time to time. What am I? What, what can I tell you? They What's like that little, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. that little writing on the bottom of the of the document? Oh, that gives us the right to intervene at any time. Just gloss right over. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry. It's probably not even going to happen. Empire? What are you talking about, Empire? 
Did you, you see our flag? Do you see our flag raised <laughs> anywhere? Well, well, apart from the base where 50,000 troops are. No, this is an empire. Yes, we have a base. But, you know, yes. look, don't, don't, even, don't even worry about that. What are you talking about? No. You're crazy. You're crazy no. to talk like that. If you keep anyway. talking like that, we'll shoot you. <laughs> we'll have to kick you out and put it in a new that's, president that's right. of your country. Um, See how this works, people. Yeah, so they reserve the right to independence, which is a curious form of independence, I must say. They also uh, took a perpetual lease uh-huh. of Guantanamo Bay. So again, yeah, you're in, you're, you're fully independent. We're going to have a huge fucking base on your island right. forever, perpetual forever. But hey, don't, don't don't think anything of it. Don't worry about it. What's the problem? What are you concerned about? So, what are you worried about? So we've got a big base on your island. What's that? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> how do you Sorry, have a, a document signed by two equals one of them has a right to reserve and the other and the and that same one also is going to perpetually take a part of your island from you yeah so that was that cuba then had elections in 1906 yes but, but the first president thomas estrada palma uh-huh. uh faced an armed re- revolt by right. some of the Cuban war veterans who didn't think he was a very good choice. Yeah. Uh, and so the U.S. In, uh, uh, occupied Cuba. <laughs> oh. So we drew up that contract for no reason whatsoever. We pretty much just yeah. take it over. What do you mean you don't like the puppet president we're trying to give you for your independence? How dare you? He looks good we, in a suit. We just saved you from colonial powers. How dare you not accept our puppet president? You should be uh, So... The U.S. occupied Cuba. Uh, they uh, installed Magoon, Charles Edward Magoon, <laughs> as governor for three years. I don't know how anyone can take him seriously with a name like Magoon. Uh, and that was the beginning of U.S. intervention in Cuba, which basically uh, uh, continued, is the word I was right. looking for, up through their support of the corrupt and brutal regime under Fulgencio Batista, Mm-hmm. who was uh, finally overthrown by Castro in uh, the end of 1958, beginning of 1959. He, he resigned uh, January 1, New Year's Eve, 1959, as you've all seen in The Godfather Part yes. 2. So, so 19, early, 19, early 20th century, we take it over. We back up whatever guy's in charge. I'm sure he did a horrible job. They did a series of dictators, whatever, were probably cruel to the people. And finally, Castro comes 57 whatever 55 years later to free his people uh, again that's just another black eye for America and the Americans go how dare you <laughs> you dare you how dare you Mr. Castro communist. <laughs> how yeah. dare you overthrow our puppet government uh, anyway so back to the Philippines because uh, yeah, yeah. we're getting up on an hour and we haven't yes. even got into it so <laughs> as we do so on August 13th this is after the ceasefire had been signed between Spain and the U.S. The right. American forces in the Philippines capture the city of Manila from the Spanish in the Battle of Manila. They are mm-hmm. apparently supposedly unaware that a ceasefire had been signed. Oh, shit. Didn't check their email in the morning, apparently. Right. Uh, so there's the Battle of Manila, and this causes some problems because then after the Spanish are defeated and the Filipino forces try to move into Manila... The Americans country. prevent them. What? So the Americans, Dewey went and got Aguinaldo from Hong Kong, says, come and help us help 
you gain the independence of your country, <laughs> and then when they try and take control of the capital city, the Americans go, ah, ah, no, no, ah, no, 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 no. No, not, not so, so fast. <laughs> they lined them all up, and they said, one step forward, everyone who's going to take control of the Philippines. Not so fast, Filipinos. No. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Larry, Stan, <laughs> Barry, <laughs> Barry, step back. Barry. <laughs> You're embarrassing yourself, Barry. Again. The, oh my God. But, but, but that is not my name. Shut up, shut up. Where can I call you, Barry? Stan. It's the only name I can remember. You look like Joe. a Barry. Yeah. Where Chad, we come yeah. from, we've got a president we call Barry. I mean, it's uh, it's okay. Don't take. That's not it's his name, sure. But yeah. So uh, this marks the end of the Filipino-American-collaboration, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And uh, this leads to what, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is often called the First Vietnam. Now, back in the US in 1899, McKinley had set up something called the Sherman Commission. It was set up Mm -hmm. to decide what to do with the Philippines. Good for him. And uh, the Sherman Commission recommends that the U.S. retains control of the Philippines, possibly Possibly. granting independence at some point in the future. There you go. We're always looking out for the other guy. Good for us. Yeah, for the underdog. Possibly possibly granting independence in the future. Yeah, so there you go. You can't say we're bad. It's not an empire. No, if no, you, no, if no. we say that we will possibly grant you independence in the right. future, come on, look it's up right. empire in the fucking it's, dictionary, there's man. There's nothing <laughs> about granting Michael. independence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had the, the, the Wham Empire. Uh, uh, so anyway, the commission concluded that right. the United States cannot withdraw no. We are there and duty binds us to remain. The oh, Filipinos shit. are wholly unprepared for independence. Just ask them. No, wait, they said they wanted it. Oh, don't fucking ask them. What do no, they know? They're a bunch of, bunch of barbarians. Man. They don't know. Stan, do you want independence? Yes, shut up. Somebody shoot Stan. Barry, yes. <laughs> shoot Barry. Look, we'll keep going until we find somebody who says you don't want independence. We, 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 can be, we, can, we can stay here all night. We're not going <laughs> we anywhere. Um, uh, so the Sherman Commission concluded there being no Philippine nation, but only a collection of different peoples. But now, does this, sound, does this sound at all familiar to you, Ray? Huh, they're just a collection of peoples. They're not a nation. They need us to stay here and run things for them. Hmm... I think I've heard of well, that. we can't leave Iraq now, Ray. Look, we've spent it's broken. We've spent ten years breaking it. We can't leave. <laughs> it's broke. Right. We have a responsibility, Ray. It is our <laughs> duty as God-fearing Americans. You said duty to to fix it. We have to fix it, and we don't care if we have to kill a million children to do it. It's worth the price, or spend a trillion dollars of as, tax, American uh, taxpayers' money. Who was uh, Clinton's Secretary of State? Big bouffant hairdo. Oh, God. Come on, Ray, you're an American. Can't expect me to know all these things. Oh, shit. Don't Google it, I'm Googling it. You Google it, okay. Look up bouffant hair. Big hairdo, yeah. Big hairdo. Uh, No, not Hillary Clinton, the other Clinton. Google, Jesus Christ, do I have to explain everything to you? (laughs) Actually, yes, you do. 
Madeline Albright. Yes. As she yes. said when interviewed about the death during their uh, sanctions against Iraq, that 500,000 children would die. Do you think it's worth the price? And she famously, on television, I think it was on 60 Minutes or 2020, 2020 it might have been, she said, yes, we think it's worth the price. Good one. Democrats. She, she Clinton Democrats. Hairs, you couldn't see her horns. Oh, the Democrats. Oh, they fucking love them a bit of Bill Clinton because he was cool. Yeah. He played saxophone. That's right. 500,000 Iraqi children dead, but don't don't, don't worry about yeah. that. It was worth look the price. Blow that, anyway. Look at him blow that sax. So yeah. uh, let's get back to the Philippines. So yeah, yeah, yeah. the commission said, no, look, we are there. We have to stay there. It doesn't matter what it takes, which has been the justification of colonial powers since forever. Oh, look, they don't know how to roll, rule themselves. Look, they're a bunch of darkies. Darkies what? don't know anything. They, 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 <laughs> these ones were all Christians, too. They wasn't even, look, yes. they're darkies and they don't believe in Jesus. These are just darkies. And they're, okay, they're Christian darkies, but, you know, they, they don't know yeah. what they're doing. So anyway, the U.S. had originally sent about 11,000 ground troops to the Philippines. Uh, by the start of the war with the Filipino people, they had around 21,000. Mm. They're outnumbered by the Filipinos who have, estimates vary, but somewhere between 100,000 and 80,000 uh, with tens of thousands of auxiliaries, but right. they, they don't have guns, or many guns no. anyway. They may have you know, been able to capture some from the Spanish, but what are they armed with, Ray? I would imagine mostly their imagination, um, bows and arrows, um, spears. <laughs> you take a stick, you take a stick and you rub it on the ground, and then you turn it, rub it some more, and get a really good sharp point. Very effective if the other person holds still. And bolo knives, which is like a machete. Oh, it's like a bolo knife is a machete type thing with a rather than a round end. It's sort of got a sharp uh, corner on it. Um, So, yeah. So the Filipinos are going to try and take on the Americans with knives and bows and arrows. Now, the, I mean, yes, this was the end of the 19th century, so the Americans weren't hitting them with Tomahawk missiles, but uh, they obviously had guns and uh, artillery, probably, yeah, battleships, heavier, heavier artillery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So armed conflict broke out between the U.S. and the Filipinos after the U.S. decided to take the place of Spain as the colonial power uh in control of the country, and this is the Philippine-American War. Now, the first Damn. battle was mm-hmm. so one-sided that American troops jokingly referred to it as a quail shoot. Oh, God. Jeez. Dead Filipinos were piled up so high, according to American soldiers who wrote letters home, that they used the bodies for breastworks. They were building walls out of Filipino bodies. Jeez. Uh, a British witness who was there said, this is not war, it is simply massacre and murderous butchery. And they're fighting for independence. They were mm, fighting but, Spain, now they're fighting us. Mm. But the Americans were pretty happy with their initial success and their uh, commander of the ground forces, General Otis... Mm-hmm. Again, not sure how you could take anyone seriously when he's called Otis. But anyway, he predicted, a la George W. Bush, that uh, the war would be ended in a matter of weeks. Shit. 
put up a big well, banner. A chance. Yeah. Mission accomplished behind him. Uh, yeah. But the Filipinos weren't going to give up that easily and they hunkered down and started a guerrilla campaign. And because they were actually half Spanish, <laughs> they yeah. actually knew how to pronounce guerrilla. Where, which <laughs> is, as people way. may or may not know, the uh, term guerrilla warfare comes from Napoleon's invasion of Spain in the early part of the 19th century. Yeah, and they just were going to take it. And so I guess they did untraditional tactics, trying to make it so miserable for the invaders that they leave, not because they lost, just because things are so miserable and they're losing so many men in unconventional ways. It's not worth continuing. And so that's what, and if you think about it, the Filipinos have been able to practice on the Spanish for, from what, 19, excuse me, from 1868 to to 19, to. 1898. So yeah, they've had plenty of uh, practice against the Spanish. Now they're doing it to the Americans. And I say good for them. And despite what you probably are thinking, guerrilla does not mean a large member of the primate family. No. (laughs) Comes from the Spanish word for war, guerra, and it's like a small war, guerrilla. Guerrilla. Spanish-speaking listeners, please forgive my bad pronunciation of that word. So what what the Filipinos would do is they would let the Americans take towns, Mm -hmm. which the Americans took as more evidence of their success. Look, we just came in. This is so easy. We're just going to take over this place in in no time at all. But the Filipinos had left booby traps behind. Ah. And then they would attack at night, usually during tropical rainstorms. They'd ambush the Americans. And uh, they were pretty brutally fucking effective at it. So much so that Otis, after declaring they would be, uh, it'll all be over in a matter of weeks, ends up uh, riding home to the US and asking for more troops. He ends up with 70,000 troops, uh, about 120,000 circulate through there for different uh, periods of time. But at any given time, I think he had a force of about 70,000 at its maximum. And you're right, this is the first um, Vietnam, because that's exactly what they did. Attack at night, let you in, that kind of stuff. And yeah, so these people are just literally trying to be free, to to, to be able to run their own country. Um, and so it's against us Americans, but I mean, I would do the same thing if I was in their shoes. No, you can't have your freedom. Shut up. Don't you know you're a bunch of barbarians? You right. don't. You, you wouldn't know what to do with it if we gave you and, we'll, we'll, you know, to prove it to you, we're going to kill as many of you as we can. Um, well, <clears throat> yeah, what? I was just going to say the other part where you were mentioning it was our Christian duty or something like that, what the American said. Please keep in mind that Christianity was, uh, quote, unquote, introduced into the Philippines in 1521 by Spain. <laughs> and so by the time this war comes around, even though it was forced upon them, at least 80% of the um, island is Christian. So they're Christian. They have the same Christian values. They're Catholic. They're just the have the wrong color skin. It's our Christian duty to kill Christians to teach them how to be better Christians. Exactly. Because Jesus. Because <laughs> Jesus wanted America exactly to kill the Christian Filipinos. By name. the way, one of the American generals uh, involved in this conflict, who later became the first military governor of the Philippines, was mm-hmm. General Arthur MacArthur. Yes. Now, you know... Seriously, what kind of a dick parent do you need to be? Yeah. When your surname is MacArthur, to name your kid Arthur MacArthur. Like, You're seriously. 
big, arrogant, cocky prick. Arthur MacArthur. Arthur MacArthur. Arthur MacArthur, of course, being General Douglas MacArthur's father. Arthur Mm -hmm. MacArthur was father of Douglas MacArthur. (laughs) Say that ten times fast now. (laughs) No, sing it it in the the tune that we heard at the very beginning of the show. Or maybe it's more more like uh, one of those oldie-timey musicals. Arthur MacArthur was the father of Douglas MacArthur. (laughs) There you go. Uh, anyway, Arthur MacArthur called this the most legitimate and humane war ever conducted on the face Jeez. of the earth. Bullshit. Yeah. Now, um, General William Shafter, uh, who, won the, who won the Medal of Honor during the American Civil War and who led the United States expedition to Cuba in 1898 and right. for whom Fort Shafter in Hawaii is named, right. was at this stage in uh, charge of supplying the expedition to the Philippines. He was running something called the Department of California, sort of the war division uh, for the West mm-hmm. Coast of the US. He said... My plan would be to disarm the natives of the Philippine Islands, even if we have to kill half of them to do it. Fuck! When you say disarm, do you mean take away their sticks and bows and arrows? Yeah. Okay. Just Mm. checking. That was his plan. Medal of Honor winner. A lot of honor. We're We're going to give them peace, even if we have to kill half of them to do it. And why? Jesus. Jesus. Because um, Jesus says that's what we are supposed to do. Historian John M. Gates estimates that at least 15,000 to 20,000 Filipino soldiers were killed with up to an additional 200,000 civilian deaths. Mm, I guess disease. Yeah, disease. Like you were saying uh, before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just firebombing of villages and farms and crops again same as in vietnam you know the american approach was just to devastate it was a scorched earth policy we'll get to that um but this is the most legitimate and humane war ever conducted on the face of the earth worthy of medals uh, macarthur said um Filipino historian uh, san juan jr however argues that 1.4 million Filipinos died during the war and that it constitutes an act of genocide on the part of the United States. Yeah. Uh, the, United pa- the United States Department of State themselves uh, go with the number of uh, 20,000 Filipino combatants dead and 200,000 Filipino civilians died from violence, famine and disease. But, you know, I want to stop for a second and compare this to the stories we've talked about of uh, Stalin and the Soviet countries, Ukraine, etc., during uh, his reign. You know, mm-hmm. we've criticized him for brutally trying to crush the will of the rebellious uh, sections of. Yeah, they didn't um, want to collectivize, collectivize their farms. Yeah, yeah. So he. Yeah. Yeah, and so and I guess I'm just making the 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 argument here that neither the U.S. nor the British, and we've talked about India as one example uh, mm-hmm. of British rule, and we haven't even gone into that in much detail. Um, 
there's no moral high ground here for any of these parties. And so, again, if, you, if, you, if you're in Stalin's head, when the US are saying to him 50 years after this Philippine war, uh, hey, you're not allowed to invade these countries and take over this yeah. territory, I mean, he's just going to turn around and go, sorry, like, fuck yeah. you. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what fucking high platform did you just get off of? Uh, hello, Hawaii. Hello, Philippines. Hello, Mexico. Hello, Cuba. all of the Indian territories. Yeah. Uh, hello, exactly. like Guam, Puerto Rico. Just, you know, Cuba. Just shut the fuck up. Mind your own fucking business. But we, you know, we always hear about the, the Russian side of it, the Soviet side of it. We just don't hear about the American or the British side as much. And this gets back to what we've been saying since the beginning of this series. It's because a lot of these things are whitewashed. Mm-hmm. In Western countries and Western versions of history, they get brushed over briefly if they get talked about at all. Or spun, yeah, like you. And again, it's it just takes a lot of courage to be able to look at your country's past and go, yeah, you know what, that happened. We did that. Let's do whatever we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. Because that's all you can do. You can't do anything about the past. You can just make sure that's not duplicated and. And you are making improvements. If, if I you don't know why it takes process. courage. Why does it take courage? Where, where's takes, the courage it, involved? No, it, no, it absolutely to me takes courage to be able to because you could walk up to someone. You could walk, and I'm not picking. I'm just saying you could walk up to a uh, Donald Trump supporter and go, "America's not great. America wasn't always great." And for them, it's such simplistic terms. They're going to freak out, even though they could not argue with you. They couldn't argue with you about um, what happened in the Philippines because they don't know. And if they did know, they would justify it in their own head. So it would be okay. So there's a percentage of every population that is okay with what's happening. As long as it's your country doing it, you can justify it. It's not happening to you. And if, hey, if they don't look like you, it makes it all that all that uh, easier. So I'm just saying, to me, it always takes courage to look and to face the nature negative aspects of your country, your life, your past, whatever. And I don't think a lot of people have that kind of courage. They don't want it. It doesn't fit into their already created, crafted mindset of what it, it means to be an American and to, to examine our history. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, I, I, mean I, I have as little connection to things that happened in my country's history than things that happened to that Caesar did or Alexander did. I mean, the things that happened mm, by yeah. that other people did in the past. My, I don't have any connection to it apart from the fact that I might share a country of birth with these people. But what's it got to do with me? I mean, I'm no, happy to call right. out atrocities committed by yeah. other people of my nationality as much as I am anyone else in any other part of the world. Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, and it's been used a billion times in defenses, whatever, my country, right or wrong. And for some people, there's no wrong. It's a saying, but they see everything as right because uh, they're told as kids our country can't do any wrong. We only do right, and so they're not willing to accept it. But anyway, we are getting way off talk. And I'm just saying it takes a certain amount of courage to go, yeah, you know what? bad on us, we fucked up, or we did this. And there are a certain percentage of Americans and probably in every country that just aren't willing to go through that and, and, and won't accept it. So maybe courage is not the right word. I don't know. But uh, there's always going to be a percentage of people that will not do that, no matter what you put in front of them. I'd say it's more a case of intellectual honesty. There we go. That's, that's, that's you know. Don't, don't, don't lie. I mean, don't bullshit yourself. Anyway, anyway, let's move I'm on. bullshitting um, you, not myself. <laughs> Where were we? 
Oh, no, but we're uh, 75 minutes into this bitch, so let's wrap this up. <laughs> I, gotta, I don't want to break this into two episodes. Cause well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, I want to get into some of the stories of what went on. I mean, I'm going to talk about atrocities. Uh, if you have a weak stomach, maybe skip this bit. But uh, So as I mentioned, as the, as the guerrilla war uh, lengthened, the U.S. became more and more brutal, and uh, they basically developed a scorched earth policy Here's a segments of some letters written home by American soldiers. One soldier wrote, The town of Titatia was surrendered to us a few days ago, and two companies occupy the same. Last night, one of our boys was found shot and his stomach cut open. Immediately, orders were received from General Wheaton to burn the town and kill every native in sight, which was Damn. done to a finish. About a thousand men, women, and children were reported killed. I'm probably growing hard-hearted, for I am in my glory when I can sight my gun, gun on some dark skin and pull the trigger. Damn. Another soldier wrote, We make everyone get into his house by 7pm, and we only tell a man once. If he refuses, we shoot him. We killed over 300 natives the first night. They tried to set the town on fire. If they fire a shot from the house, we burn the house down and every house near it and shoot the natives. So they're pretty quiet in town now. Damn. Here's another one. On Thursday, March 29th, 1900, 18 of my company killed 75 nigger bolo men and 10 of the nigger gunners. When we find one who is not dead, we have bayonets. Oh, fuck. Here's another. It was on the 27th of December, the anniversary of my birth, and I shall never forget the scenes I witnessed that day. As we approached the town, the word passed along the line that there would be no prisoners taken. It meant we were to shoot every living thing in sight, man, woman, or child. Jesus, first... we just bought a war to save these people from Spain, to free them from Spain, and this is what we're doing. The first shot was fired by the then first sergeant of our company. His target was a mere boy who was coming down the mountain path into town astride of a carabao. The boy was not struck by the bullet, but that was not the sergeant's fault. The little Filipino boy slid from the back of his carabao and fled in terror up the mountainside. Half a dozen shots were fired after him. The shooting now had attracted the villagers who came out of their homes in alarm, wondering what it all meant. They offered no offence, did not display a weapon, made no hostile movement whatsoever, but they were ruthlessly shot down in cold blood, men, women and children. The poor natives huddled together or fled in terror. Many were pursued and killed on the spot. Two old men bearing a white flag and clasping hands like two brothers approached the lines. Their hair was white. They fairly tottered. They were so feeble under the weight of years. To my horror and that of the other men in the command, the order was given to fire and the two old men were shot down in their tracks. We entered the village. A man who had been on a sickbed appeared at the doorway of his home. He received a bullet in the abdomen and fell dead in the doorway. Dum-dum bullets were used in the massacre, but we were not told the name of the bullets. We didn't have to be told. We knew what they were. 
In another part of the village, a mother with a babe at her breast and two young children at her side pleaded for mercy. She feared to leave her home, which had just been fired, accidentally, I believe. She faced the flames with her children, and not a hand was raised to save her or the little ones. They perished miserably. It was sure death if she left the house. It was sure death if she remained. She feared the American soldiers, however, worse than the devouring flames. So those underdogs, Ray, that uh, Americans are looking out for, how's it going so far? Not well for them. And let's point out again, okay, people will be sitting there going, well, you know, war is hell, man, war is hell. What did the Filipinos do? Yeah, this is not war. The Filipinos said, hey, hold on, you can't just take our land. We've just been liberated, we thought, from Spain. And you have to draw an analogy between this and Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, really. And what the British were doing in India, which, you know, because going back to the Atlantic Charter, when FDR is trying to tell Churchill's got to deconstruct his empire, Churchill doesn't like that. We fucking did the same thing. So, yeah. So by 1901, the U.S. had declared martial law and considered every single Filipino an insurgent. The Navy felt free to shell coastal villages with its gunboats prior to an invasion. In January and February 1901, the entire population of Marunduk Island, which was around about 51,000 people, were ordered into five concentration camps set up by the Americans. These cramps, as they tend to be, were overcrowded and it led to disease and Mm -hmm. death. Between January and April 1902, 8,350 prisoners died. That's just in the space of four months. Some camps apparently incurred death rates as high as 20%. But the U.S. administration had a policy at this point, and the Army had a policy of not keeping records or writing any reports. So when stories of atrocities could leak out and get back home, like when soldiers would write letters that I quoted from before, the U.S. government could claim no mm-hmm. knowledge. The old plausible deniability tactic. They go, oh, I don't uh, know. We're not, we got no. We got no record of that. Uh, I think that guy's yeah. probably uh, just pulling your leg or uh, suffering yeah. from PTSD. What's that? We haven't invented it yet. Oh well, just he's. Don't worry. It's got coming. the horror. Well, that he's got the that reminds- horrors. That reminds me of something I heard on NPR today. It's like they don't they don't keep a record, uh, a national record of every time the cops shoot someone or kill someone. So it's like, so they can claim, oh, this is you know much smaller. Whatever. So I think they've recent. I think certain newspapers have recently started to do that to try to really get a hold on uh, a sense of who's being killed, how quickly, in what areas, that kind of stuff. So again, when you don't keep records, you can deny it because it's not organized and you can't just pull up the information to refute or prove an accusation and no body cams on uh, these soldiers yeah exactly and a case in point is there was the uh, murder of a thousand filipino prisoners of war in a place called sorsogan eyewitnesses u.s soldiers testified that the prisoners were forced to dig their own graves in groups of 20 and then each received one bullet in the temple When confronted with evidence, the War Department dismissed it out of hand, saying no report has been received at the War Department in respect of or referring to the alleged incident. 
So and this became the standard US government response to all of these charges. Now, <clears throat> this escalates uh, yet again. In late September uh, in 1901, in the town of Balangiga in Samar, American troops had uh, been abusing the townspeople for some time by packing them into open wooden pens at night and forcing them to sleep standing in the rain. Uh, which sounds like something the Vietnamese did to American soldiers in the Vietnamese War. The Viet Cong did, I mean, not the right. Vietnamese. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, one night, uh, several score of guerrilla bolo men infiltrated the town. And on the morning of September 28th, while Americans were eating their breakfast, these bolo men fell upon them. And in the one account I read, it said heads dropped into breakfast dishes. Oh, God. 54 Americans were boloed to death, had their heads chopped off by machetes. And uh, a few of the 18 survivors uh, escaped serious injury. Uh, but when General Howland Jake Smith was sent on a mission of revenge, he ordered his men to kill everything over the age of 10. Yeah, because some 11-year-old was involved in that. I wonder if they asked to see their birth certificate before they killed them, just to right. be sure what side of the birthday. What, what, what day is it? Well, it's the uh, 3rd of October. Oh, sorry, son. It was I'm your sorry. birthday yesterday. If it was your birthday tomorrow, yeah. you know, you would have survived. To let you go. Hal and, exactly. Hal and Jake also told his troops, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. And the more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. The interior of Samar must be made a howling wilderness, which is where he got his nickname from, uh, Hal and Jake. Mm. For many years thereafter, officers and men of the United States Marine Corps paid a traditional tribute to the courage of the Marines that uh, did the March of Samar by standing in their presence and saying, Stand, gentlemen, he served on Samar. Damn. Your I don't son a Marine, right? It takes. My son is a Marine, yes. You should ask him uh, about that story next time you talk to him. See what he knows about it. Mm. Suggest no, he, he does that next time at dinner. He should stand up and yeah. say, Gentlemen, he served on Samar. Yeah. Mark Twain famously opposed this war. This is something you don't hear about enough. Mark Twain, much beloved, but also very much uh, anti-American imperialism. He mm. wrote... There is the case of the Philippines. I've tried hard, and yet I cannot for the life of me compromend how we got into that mess. Perhaps we could not have avoided it. Perhaps it was inevitable that we should come to be fighting the natives of those islands, but I cannot understand it, and have never been able to get at the bottom of the origin of our antagonism to the natives. I thought we should act as their protector, not try to get them under our heel." We were to relieve yeah. them from Spanish tyranny, to enable them to set up a government of their own, and we were to stand by and see that it got a fair trial. It was not to be a government according to our ideas, but a government that represented the feeling of the majority of the Filipinos, a government according to Filipino ideas. That would have been a worthy mission for the United States. But now, why we have got into a mess, a quagmire from which every fresh step renders the difficulty of extrication immensely greater. I'm sure I wish I could see what we were getting out of it and all it means to us as a nation. 
Well said. George Kennan, in his book, American Diplomacy, just to sum it up, wrote this. But here in 1898, for the first time, territories were acquired which were not expected to gain statehood at all at any time, but rather to remain indefinitely in a status of colonial subordination. The proponents of expansion advanced a variety of arguments. Some said that it was our manifest destiny to acquire these territories. Jesus. Others said that for one reason or another, we had a paramount interest in them. Still others maintained that we, as an enlightened and a Christian nation, (coughs) had a duty to regenerate their ignorant and misguided inhabitants. Another argument was that they were necessary to the defense of our continental territory. Finally, it was alleged by the commercially minded that we had to take them, Hawaii and the Philippines in particular, to assure ourselves of a fitting part in what was regarded as the great future trade with the Orient. The American people of that day, or at least many of their more influential spokesmen, simply liked the smell of empire and felt an urge to range themselves among the colonial powers of the time, to see our flag flying on distant tropical isles, to feel the thrill of foreign adventure and authority, to bask in the sunshine of recognition as one of the great imperial powers of the world. So we bitch about the Europeans and then we become just like them. And what had the Filipinos done to deserve all this? They had been occupied by the Spanish for 300 years and wanted their independence. Yeah. But we are fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. Let me read out a couple of our new heroes and a. Uh, we don't have any reviews, but I'm going to give away some prizes. Uh, new heroes: Defcon One, Benjamin Stuek, Jacob Pedersen, Zolnayar, Zolnai Zaba. Sorry, Zolnai, for fucking that up. If in fact I, your name is pronounced Zolnai, but thank you. Yitmu, Kyan Chain Chain Jane Mitchell. Come on, people. Like, if you have a funny name... <laughs> Give like, us a nickname. Barry. Like Toots. Stan. Socks. Stan and... Just Stan and Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're not, we're, we're not making fun of you. No. We're, uh, we're making fun of our own ignorant inability oh, to pronounce right. them properly. Yeah. Which Alan. Now, says a name I can pronounce. Alan McIntosh. Michael Terry. Thomas Dowling. Patrick Richardson. Matthew Williams. Alex Klingerman. Jason Gunning, Richard Ahola, Nicholas Rock, Michael Cardinale, John Fork, Shobita Bumbra, Rupert Woodward, Devin McShee, Craig Reardon, John Windsor, Sam Fahoum, Jerome Taylor, Peter Raber, Rich Grove, Nigel Walker, James L, Amin Buscan, Ben Hagstrom, Matthew Crabb, and Martin Trommer. Thank you very much, Thank everybody. You. We appreciate your support. Yes. DEFCON 2. New DEFCON 2 subscribers, uh, Rod Todd Hunter, not Todd Rod Hunter, that's somebody completely different. that sounds silly. Or Hunter Rod Todd, this is Rod Todd Hunter. (laughs) Uh, Rod and Todd, I always think of Rod and Todd off of The Simpsons, man. Um, And Tim, I'm sure he gets that every day of his life. Sorry, Rod. (laughs) And Tim Waterson, they're our new DEFCON 2 guys. Thank Thank you. you. There's also Paddy Turner, who's a DEFCON 2 uh, subscriber, sent us a question. You know, DEFCON 2 guys and girls, 
get to send us a question to answer. And I would have answered that on this episode, uh, Patty, but we've gone way over fucking time yeah. as it is. So we'll next leave it for time. the next one. And our new DEFCON 3, the upper echelon of subscribers, yes. Adam Gutterslow and Tony Kynaston. Our Thank good, you. good friend, Tony K. Uh, he's a bit slow. I uh, don't know what took him this long. Like, oh God. you were there in Vegas, in Vegas at the right. table with me, Tony, when yeah. I came up with the idea of doing a Cold War series. I was sitting right there. Yes, that's I what said, happened. I said, next series, Cold War, let's do it with Markham. Markham started crying. Well, said, you know. Fuck Markham, I'll do it with Ray. Uh, <laughs> well, what do you mean the Americans kill people in the Philippines? Oh, I can, no. I can, no. <laughs> so uh, anyway, thank you guys, Adam and Tony. No reviews. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very appalled to say no new reviews for the show oh, since our last episode. <laughs> Again, having you written the last 12, I think it's my turn. Let's make up some names. Go for it. But um, I am going to give out some gifts. So people, you know, I put a thing, I, I made a full page ad for um, the Podster magazine that I put up on Facebook, uh, sort of an ad for the show. Some, a lot of people liked it, but some people shared it on their own timeline. And mm. I appreciate that because that's how you spread the word. And I'm going right. to give one of those people at random a prize. Uh, Mark Far Jones. Um, Mark, thank you for that. And I've got a couple of other people here they've shared it that I'm going to call out in future episodes. But if you so, Mark, uh, send us your address again. I think we've sent you something in the past, but don't make me Google my own email. Yeah, no. Uh, send us your address, uh, email at a coldwar.com with your address. Send you a Cold War thank you gift just for sharing a fucking Facebook post. It's all you have yeah. to do to get on my good books. Click, click, click. click. Share, just and write a little note. Hey, this is a great show. If you know, if you're interested in 20th century history, you should check it out. Right, came came and Ray the fucking bomb. You know, tickle our nutsack, something like that. Nothing. You that's, know, all. that's all. That's all. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're 90 minutes in. That's ridiculous. We're out of here. curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.
ו... 